5, 21 through 42, 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him, earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a greater crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had, who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You may stand. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and were in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And as he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the reading of God's word. If you do not have a Bible, please do take that as a gift from our church. You're not stealing from a church. It's our privilege to put God's Word in your hands. If you know somebody else who could use a Bible, please do take it. Thank you, Patty, for reading this really wonderful passage that I think for many uh, is a very cherished passage for them. Um, and so we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 looking at these words. Again, that's what we need. We need 
the Bible. We need more of the Bible. And anything I say this morning, I hope, is uh, a right reflection of what the Bible has already said, not invi- inventing stuff on the spot. In fact, if that happens, you should just fire me. So we love God's Word here. Uh, we're going to be um, uh, looking um, through two different, uh, really interwoven stories from Jesus. And, you know, as we've been going through gos- the Gospel according to Mark, the, something we should know is every week as we go here, we're learning something different about Jesus. I think, sorry, I think my, is it clicking? Is it my cord? Okay, great. Look at this. We got a good tech team here, and I'm just the one always messing it up. So let's see here. Let's see if it stops it. All right, so the uh, um, last several weeks, again, we're looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of John Mark, who wrote this book. And every week we're learning something new about Jesus as it's unfolding something about Jesus' nature, his identity, about why he came, and about why Christians, they bind all of their hope up in him. It's going to fill out the picture a bit more and in some unique ways today. So far, we've seen Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, and teach about the coming of God. But in the coming stories, the ones that we're going to consider this week, they t- which are tightly woven together, they provide some of the most powerful pictures, not only of who Jesus is and what kind of power he has, but of what faith is in him. And both of these are, turn out to be <clears throat> essential if you want to take Jesus seriously, is to know his identity and what, right, what response he wants um, us to make to him. If you, again, want to take Jesus at his word, regardless if you consider yourself religious or not, these words matter to us. And again, it's very common for people to come to our church from a variety of different places spiritually. We're convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but we recognize that faith takes time for many of us. And so we want to, uh, for some of us, we are going to experience the bottom falling out out of our lives, and the words we're going to look at today are especially helpful for those kind of moments. Some of us might already be there, and Some of us might be there sometime soon. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 4 in four parts, looking at what God has to say about the nature of faith, how it's bound up with Christ's identity, and what comfort this brings when the bottom falls out of our lives. These four points are an urgent need, a costly interruption, number three, a test of faith, and a hidden miracle. So let's start with the first, an urgent need, an urgent need. Now, our passage begins with Jesus once more more surrounded by crowds. He and his disciples have just returned from a place called the Decapolis, which was a Gentile region, so a non-Jewish region, a place where surely his disciples were very uncomfortable, especially as men who who took cleanliness as Jewish men required by the law to keep themselves ritually unclean, ritually clean, excuse me, Uh, To be in Gentile territory, especially in a circumstance like this, was an uncomfortable scenario. But they have just survived some life-threatening situations, uh, including a vicious windstorm and a uh, demon-possessed madman who we're not going to get into discussing now, um, only to say the disciples, after both of these circumstances, are probably more terrified of Jesus than they are of the storm or of the madman. has to do with the kind of power that Jesus has displayed. And how he's betraying even now their expectations. Still, they land back on Jewish soil, and the way that Mark presents it here, it seems as if it takes no time for word to spread and for people to gather and this crowds to swell by the Sea of Galilee. We know that people gathered from uh, 
dozens of miles away, several days' journey, Jesus was the most influential teacher and miracle worker any of them had ever seen. And it's no time before tens, before hundreds, before thousands have come, all just jostling, uh, all bumping up against one another just to get a piece of the teacher. Then a certain man pushes through the crowd named Jairus. A man who falls on his face as soon as he arrives at Jesus' feet, desperate to be heard. A man who it would seem is at the end of his rope. After all, we find out that Jairus' daughter is dying. As a father of two daughters, four kids, two daughters, I, I can't imagine what state I would be in, just to be honest. The kind of desperation that he's experiencing here is the kind of desperation that makes you willing to do or try anything. Maybe even to see if there's something, into, uh, to something in this miracle worker that he's heard about in Capernaum. Even if it means he has to risk his final moments with his daughter to do so. After all, there's no coming back from death, right? Now something we need to realize about Jairus is that he's, he's kind of a big deal especially uh, in the surrounding area. Not only do the disciples, including Peter, whose perhaps his recollections are what this book is based on, John Mark and interviewing Peter, not only do disciples know Jairus by name, Mark tells us he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now that doesn't, realize, it doesn't feel like a big lofty title to us, but it was in Jesus' day. Men like Jairus were responsible for overseeing the public meeting chambers called synagogues where Jews would gather to pray, to worship, to learn about the Torah, and especially, from, especially on the Sabbath. Men like Jairus were entrusted by the community elders to maintain and secure the building. They were responsible to arrange the worship service itself and to oversee the orthodoxy of what was being taught. And it wasn't a paid position either. This would be in a, been a person who did so out of a love for God and a love for his community as a lay volunteer. It's a lot of work to maintain the synagogue. A synagogue ruler or was called often the synagogue president. In other words, Jairus would have been a deeply religious man who would have been deeply respected in his community. A man, in other words, who had some serious, serious clout. Not exactly someone you would expect to have now his face in the dirt in front of Jesus' feet. But this kind of despair, this kind of desperation, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it deflates our pretensions and titles, doesn't it? We can build up job titles, we can find ourselves in bigger houses, looking to advance ahead of our peers to gain the respect that we feel like we're owed. We can spend our whole lives chasing these kind of goals, but it only takes a serious loss to remind us how inescapably human we all are. How fragile our lives really can be. And how hollow our attempts at self-salvation are at their best. You may be president of the synagogue, but what good is it now? This week, I officiated my 12th funeral in three years. Here, I'm going to take my jacket off. Let's see if that helps. Because I'm just, sounds like uh, something's trying to break through the ceiling. I think it's my cord. So, um, I uh, officiated, again, my 12th, 12th funeral in three years here at Bayless. 
Um, and uh, that's, I still have yet to officiate a, uh, officiate, um, a wedding. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've tried to, I've been scheduled to officiate three weddings and the relationships have all broken up before we got there. So I don't know if that, what that says about me, but nonetheless, 12, 12 funerals in three years. And here's what I can tell you. Death has a way of recalibrating our priorities. Every time that I'm caring for a family in a funeral, I can say that fear and loss cause us sometimes to look for answers where we've never looked for them before. Sometimes even to look for answers from Jesus, when even when Jesus has never been on our radar before. I mean, maybe that's your story after all. Maybe that's why you came to church today. We recognize church can be a big ask, can be awkward for many people, but maybe that's why I brought you here to see if Jesus might have an answer when everything else has failed you. So Jairus pleads with Jesus, my little girl's at death door, death's door, Jesus. I don't, I don't know where else to go. Please come. If you would just put your hands on her, she will live. And so Jesus leaves at once. After all, there's no time to waste in a circumstance like this, which brings us to the second part of our story, a costly interruption. Let me ask you, would you consider yourself a very interruptible person? Someone who deals with interruptions well in your life? I don't know about you, but I really struggle to be interrupted, especially when I'm really focused on something. Grace can say this from personal experience, my wife. Uh, it could be sermon prep or a house project, but if I'm focused, especially when there is a time crunch or when uh, there's a lot of stress, um, I have a really difficult time shifting gears. I'm, I can be kind of a really grumpy person when this happens. Anybody else like this? I struggle to be interruptible. Thank you for making sure that I'm not the only one up here. Okay, so, the, but now try to consider this situation. You couldn't have a more high-pressure moment than this. Jesus and his disciples trying as quickly as they can to get the little girl led by a daddy in panic. Now, perhaps praying with he's the, her dad is perhaps praying with every step, as I know I would be, that she can last just one more breath, one more moment for the teacher to finally get there. This is her last chance. This is his last chance at seeing his daughter saved. All the while, they are being pushed around by the crowd. After all, the crowd doesn't seem to care where Jesus is going. All they know is they want, they're not going to let Jesus leave them behind. They're going to come with him if they have to. And so he, they, uh, they make his passage even more difficult as they continue to shove on through the crowds, Jesus suddenly stops. He stops in his tracks. Begins looking around. Who touched me? I mean, has Jesus lost his mind? Who touched you, his disciples say. What do you mean? Everyone's touching you right now, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. In other words, let's get a move on. We can't waste a moment here. I don't know why you're panicking, Jesus. But Jesus refuses. He keeps looking, it says, even as they were pressing their way through the crowd. He knows that someone's life has been irrevocably changed. You know what Jesus knows, and his disciples do not, is that a woman has also come searching for him that day, whose name, unlike Jairus, is unknown. In fact, she doesn't, she shouldn't actually be out in public for reasons we're going to get to in a second, but like Jairus, she is out of options. For 12 years, this woman has suffered from a kind of menstrual hemorrhage, which is called a mastix in the Greek. And that's kind of a nerdy, but he'll, I'll tell you why this term matters. The word means something like whip 
or scourge or torment. It's used when the apostles are whipped and flogged before being thrown in prison in the book of Acts and should give you a kind of sense of what this chronic suffering was like for this woman, what she was living with. But Mastix also gives us an idea not just of suffering but of deep shame. After all, a condition like hers in a society like this would have rendered her ritually unclean. I realize that may not seem like a big deal to us, but in Jewish society, Jewish people were required by the law to go to some rather extreme lengths to keep themselves clean as a symbol of their hatred of sin and of their loyalty to God. So imagine a close loved one you find out has COVID, okay? Or is it coronavirus? Which, my, which one's the virus and which one's the disease? I don't always remember. Is it right to say they have COVID? Okay, thank you. Medical experts out there are saying yes. Okay, so, uh, so if you found out a loved one is... Uh, has COVID, and they have scheduled to come over for lunch, are you going to still have those lunch plans? Well, not right now, okay? So not, not right now. In fact, we would keep people at a distance and not just six feet, right? So if you find this out, you want to avoid. You don't want to get infected. You have to think also this, uh, this is an even more extreme form in this society because this woman wasn't just avoided for two weeks or two months or two years. For 12 years, she was unclean. You could not worship in the temple if you were unclean. You couldn't even go out in public for fear of making other, other people, even your loved ones, unclean as well. According to the law, a woman would be unclean for seven days after her cycle. And since this woman's bleeding never stopped, she would have remained unclean for 12 years, which is, if you notice the timeline here, the same age as Jairus' daughter. For as long as his daughter's been alive, she has been unclean. In many ways, she would have been regarded as a leper, a community outcast, kept at a distance, if not regarded with fear and shame. It's no wonder she had spent all that she had on medical cures. As Mark says, suffering much under many physicians. Suffering from chronic illness myself, which has not been fun the last few weeks, I can empathize with the statement, suffering much under many physicians. Anybody else know what that's like? I see some really strong answers. That's right. So in her day, there would be no medical insurance, though. The medical care could be fairly brutal and ineffective, and there were no hospitals for her to be admitted to. At this point, she has exhausted all of her options, spent all of her money, and for what? What does our passage say? Only to have her condition get even worse. Her desperation may have been quieter, than Jairus's, but make no mistake, it was just as urgent. Who knows why she ventured out finally that day? After all, she wasn't supposed to leave the house, let alone be pressed into a crowd, making everything, making everyone that she touched in that crowd unclean along the way, but perhaps she saw the crowds approaching, and she saw the miracle worker that she had heard about in the midst, and knew this would be her one chance, one opportunity perhaps to be healed, Perhaps she'd heard stories of this miracle worker and figured she didn't have anything else to lose. She'd lost everything already. She wouldn't even draw attention to herself. She would, only if, I, if only I could just touch his garments, I would be made well. This act likely has less to do with a really thought-through theology, someone who's really reading the Bible to find out, again, about God's power, than it does to, it perhaps has more to do with a common superstition at the time, a superstition that held that certain leaders 
were imbued with a supernatural aura. They, uh, aura. They, uh, they, they could be that, that kind of supernatural aura that this uh, power could be passed to those who passed them along the way, who touched them. In fact, we, uh, we read of Alexander the Great, who was said to have been mobbed by crowds, very similar, who ran to him from all sides, some touching his hands, his knees, and, his, and some his garment, in the hope of being baptized with the kind of power they were convinced that Alexander the Great had. So again, it may be bound up less with really thought through theology than superstition. And yet even this shaky, in many ways mistaken faith, like a lightning rod, channels the very power of God from Jesus to her own flesh, healing it immediately and completely. It says that she felt in her body the immediate change, didn't she? And then she, uh, perhaps overwhelmed, sunk back into the crowd, determined to get away before anyone else would notice her, intent on remaining anonymous. Only Jesus won't let her escape. He stops, calling out for her, to the confusion of everyone else around him. Jesus allows himself to be interrupted without thought of the time ticking away about breath after breath, about minute after minute disappearing in front of him. Fully present now with the woman who still was in need of help. Think about it for a second. He could have let her slip away. She had already been healed. She got what she wanted. He didn't need to stop to heal her anymore. Uh, Just a touch had worked. He didn't even need to touch her himself. But Jesus knows that she needs more than healing. What she needs is him. And so he calls out for her to come near, but Mark tells us she was afraid. Why? Well, think about it for a second. It makes sense for God to show up for a man like Jairus, doesn't it? Someone who is well-respected, well-connected, someone who has a great reputation in the community, someone who has spent his life and study studying the word of God in the service of God. It makes sense for God to show up for someone like that, doesn't it? But her, this unnamed woman, is a nobody. An outsider, known only for her shame. Her faith is weak, desperate. Borders maybe even on superstition. Even the healing she received, you have to wonder, it seems almost like she had taken something from Jesus without his permission, or at least does in her perspective. How does Jesus respond How would he respond? Would he rebuke her for her selfishness, corrupting all these people that she had touched along her way in the crowd? Would he take back from her what she surely feared that she had taken, she had stolen from him? Would he see her for what she actually was? Can you imagine the courage it would have taken her to respond to his voice and come forward? Surely she expects Jesus to treat her just like everyone else had treated her. Still, Mark tells us she came forward, trembling, but she came forward. And just like Jairus, fell down at the feet of Jesus and told him, I love the phrase here, the whole truth. I think many of us can relate with this if we're honest. Again, showing up to church is a risk. Seeking out God is a risk. Our lives may be Desperate enough right now to see if God has the solution for us. We're at least willing to check Jesus out from a distance, but we're still sure that if we stick around long enough, 
the people here, or maybe even God himself, will figure us out and send us packing. Many of us keep others, even God, at arm's length because it's just easier to stay anonymous. To keep all my junk to myself, to slap a smile on my face, even though I know it's fake, counting the minutes until we can disappear again. But friend, what if God doesn't want you to hide anymore? What if he sees you already as you actually are? And what if, like the woman, God wants to give you more than what you were looking for? Jesus knows what we need, even though we could not see it. And, she knows, and he knows what we need is what she needed, even though she couldn't see it. What we need is not just restoration for our marriages, security in these really weird days, even comfort in the face of death and sickness. What we need is not so much something as it is someone, Jesus himself. Friend, you may have come here for a variety of different reasons, but what we need, you and me, is Jesus Christ. And the good news is Jesus is not too busy for you. He does not have better things to attend to. He is not crossing his arms waiting for you to figure your life out or to clean yourself up just a little bit more before you come. In Jesus, you find someone who sees you already, including your shame, your uncertainty, and your fear. In Jesus, you find someone who is fully, compassionately, and completely, undistractedly present. And just like the woman, he is asking you to tell him the whole truth. The best science, the best medical care, the best portfolio, the next politician, the next relationship, your 401k cannot save you. I fear many of us, even many religious people, have put their hope in a vaccine or in the White House. Not to say that these things do not matter, but even as they do, they cannot offer you the kind of true and enduring peace that Jesus now offers this woman, the kind of peace that you and I are longing for, that remains even when our circumstances can be very unpredictable. Only Jesus can save in that kind of way. Do you sense him even calling to you right now? Would you tell him the whole truth? about your shame, about all that you have suffered and lost, about how you have made your own situation worse, putting your hope in the wrong things, all the things that have failed you and still will, the same compassion and peace can be yours if you will tell him the whole truth. Do you sense him calling out to you even now? Still, as I said, this interruption was costly, didn't I? After all, the result of this someone comes from Jairus's house, your daughter is dead. Why, but, why trouble the teacher any further? This leads us to the third part, a test of faith. Have you ever arrived at, uh, at a scene too late? I have four siblings. I'm the oldest of them. And when my sister was a uh, Born, she came in a hurry. My mom, she rushed to the hospital with a friend at the time, desperately trying to get hold of my dad. My dad had to go to work that day, and my dad was working at the time as a delivery driver for UPS. 
And even though his boss knew that his daughter could come any day, um, that, her, that his uh, wife was nearing the due date, she insisted on sending my dad out for deliveries. And some of these deliveries were very, very far away. You can probably see where this story is going. Soon, sure enough, labor came as my dad was off making these deliveries and no one was able to reach him. This was in the days before cell phones, if you can imagine those days, right? In which the best, uh, the, the only way to really get a hold of him was to call the houses on his delivery route, hoping, beyond hope, that you would catch him before he got there. Well, they didn't. My dad finished his route and discovered when he got back to, the, back to the headquarters that someone had left a note for him to call the hospital. He called the hospital and heard the news, congratulations, you're a father. Let's just say that my mom got the biggest bouquet of flowers from his boss that she's ever seen in his life. You ever arrive too late? Some of us, we carry us our... our Biggest regrets from being too late. I hate that sinking, anxious feeling of arriving late myself. And here, it seems as if Jesus is simply too late. Notice the despair in the person's voice. And why trouble the teacher any further? I mean, this is the point at which you give up hope, right? Only Jesus will not let him. He says to Jairus, don't fear, only believe. Well, that's easier said than done. Thanks, Jesus. And believe what, what exactly? Believe what? That he hasn't just lost everything? That the bottom hasn't just fallen out of his life? You know, before we get too ahead of ourselves, notice that Jesus doesn't tell Jairus what he is about to do. Sometimes we can read ahead. We can, if you, perhaps if you know this story, we can forget at what point in the story we are. He doesn't tell him that he's about to raise his daughter from the dead. After all, If he did, the man probably would have laughed in his face, as we're going to find that the mourners soon do. No, I think Jesus is actually saying something else. You know, our kids are still learning how to swim. One of the most important things for them to learn to swim, one of the biggest uh, uh, things that they have to before they're going to continue to advance, is to jump off the side in the pool. And so uh, I think in many ways this is the, uh, the image here is of a father, you know, standing in the water, waiting for his child to jump. And the best thing for my child, for my kids, when they're panicked and afraid on the side, is not to describe to them what is about to take place. You're going to step forward, you're going to hit the water, your head's going to go under, and I'm going to grab you. It's not to describe all of the events, to tell them what is coming. Instead, my kids, after all, are convinced that once they hit that water, they are surely to drown. What my kids instead need is a father who tells them to take their eyes off of the water and says, hey, look here, look at dad. I won't drop you. Do you trust me? Jesus is asking Jairus to take his eyes for a moment off of his circumstance, even for a moment, even though there is every reason to fear. And he is saying, Jairus, will you trust me? Sometimes, friend, Jesus asks us to take a a step of faith and he does not tell us what is going to happen next. Jesus sometimes just asks us, "Can, can you trust me? But notice the timing of this as well. What has Jesus just done? Why are these stories intentionally by the author and by God himself interwoven with one another? It's that Jesus has given Jairus the very evidence that he needs to trust him. 
He has seen the power and compassion of Jesus already fully displayed in front of him in this interruption. In fact, we could say that Jesus' delay is actually out of compassion. You hear that? Sometimes God can delay in coming through out of compassion. Here, if he, by delaying, he gives Jairus the foolproof evidence of God's goodness and power of his compassion and presence that Jairus will need to take these next few steps. And he has seen this love and power come to the least expected. This reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Art Azuria, the, uh, a pastor and writer. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab into the dark. It is not the crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. This is how we often think of faith, isn't it? We think of faith as something that requires me to shut off my mind, to ignore the evidence around me, to take the blind leap into the dark. I've used this illustration before, but it's like Indiana Jones. Everybody seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? And I'm getting to the point, I, me- I teach student, college students, and I mentioned this the other day, and they're like, I've never seen that movie, so I'm starting to feel real old. But nonetheless, so he comes to this chasm, the leap of faith, and he can't jump across it, he can't build a bridge across it, he just has to liber- literally step out and finds that there's a bridge actually there that's been painted to look like the, uh, the cavern in front of him. That is not the image of biblical faith, just this blind, mindless, hoping for the best and leaping out into the dark. That is not what biblical faith is. We think of faith that, again, requires me to shut off my mind, but in fact, faith requires that I have my mind more engaged than ever to consider the evidence, particularly the evidence God has given in his word and in the gospel itself for why he can be trusted. We are considering the evidence not just of our circumstances, but of something more stable and secure. We are considering the evidence of a God who has proven himself again and again and again. It is careful consideration, careful meditation, not on my circumstances, but on something more stable and secure, which is God himself. Someone who can be trusted even in the face of death. Azuria goes on and says, Faith is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what, friends? Again, not on my circumstances or my limited understanding of them. Faith dwells, meditates, rehearses facts that are far more stable and certain that God is not limited in his power or his desire to save. That my God is good and just, and there is coming a day where he will be seen to be good and just in a way that I will agree. Faith dwells upon God, a God who has proven himself again and again and again. You want proof? You want stronger faith? Grow to know the object of your faith. Friends, read the record of your God and of his works. Read of what he has done for you, the infinite lengths he's gone for you. Particularly read about what he has accomplished in Jesus. Immerse yourself in this book. Drink from it. Search it, looking for more of what is true and good and beautiful, what is more true than my limited view. Art Azuria says, authentic faith is not merely believing in God. Hear this. Authentic faith is believing God. 
It is not merely believing in God, it is believing God. He goes on, taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do as he says, that his speaking is his doing. Jesus asks Jairus to believe and to trust the same God who was good to the woman will be good to him, even if it's not clear what will happen next. And still, this leads to, number four, a hidden miracle. Soon enough, they arrive at Jairus' house, where the morning is already in full swing. Something we need to know about mourning during this time, we don't have this today, is you would have professional mourners. Can you imagine going into a, a, that would be your job? You're paid to be a professional mourner. Okay, so musicians and professional wailers, okay, so who were there uh, already at his home. Um, even the poorest person was said to have at least uh, hired on a few, um, somebody who could play a fiddle and one wailing woman. Again, we don't, we can't, con- we don't imagine these kind of days, but nonetheless, you have this, these, uh, um, this morning already on full display, and Jesus walks in, and Jesus has the audacity to tell them to stop. After all, he says, the girl is only sleeping. Now, I need to clarify here. Jesus isn't saying that the girl's death is an illusion. Even as he says, she has not died. It's like when he's speaking of Lazarus, that this won't end in death. Instead, he's saying that this death won't be final. Just as one would eventually wake from sleep, it is time to tell the little girl to wake up. But the mourners don't take kindly to this. Perhaps this shows how fake this kind of public mourning had become, that the Uh, the forced tears turn to laughter, the fake compassion turns to cynicism, and they laugh at Jesus. I have to tell you, walking in faith so often provokes ugly reactions from others. So often in choosing to trust God, to act upon what we know to be true about him, even when uh, when the stakes are high, especially when the stakes are high, others might mock you, Others might plead with you to change your mind. And surely, if you're like me, you know it's sometimes the greatest cynic, the most hardcore realist, is not outside of you, it's within you. Calling us foolish, reminding us all we could stand to, to lose still in trusting God's word. I have to tell you, especially as it grows more costly to be a public Christian, I'm aware that faith is a daily battle takes weekly convincing, at least if you're as forgetful as I am, but those who would trust God, even amidst all their fear and uncertainty, they stand to witness miraculous things. After all, did you notice how restrictive Jesus is about who sees this miracle? Might have skipped past that, but Jesus, he doesn't allow any of the mourners who just mocked him in the living room, does he? In fact, he's selective about which of his disciples he takes in with him. If it was me, I'd want everyone in there possible. I want them packed shoulder to shoulder, especially those cynics. I want them to have a front row seat. Go ahead and show them up. See what my power really can do. See who's laughing now. And Jesus does not. He keeps them outside, doesn't he? Jesus doesn't sing and dance for the entertainment of the cynic, but for those with faith, even the smallest faith, he gives more reason for faith. Instead of the crowds, Jesus, instead of the cynics, he invites the parents, 
and three of his closest disciples to see the greatest miracle that he has yet accomplished, something surely no one there expected. He has proven himself before stronger than sickness, stronger than prejudice, stronger than storms, stronger than even demons, and now Jesus will reveal himself to be stronger even than death. The same one who spoke the world into existence now says, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. I have to wonder if Jesus, looking at the the body of the little girl growing colder by the minute, if he thought of another death still yet to come, surely he did, his own. After all, this little girl, just like the resurrection of Lazarus, these are some of the few people that have had to die twice. In order for final life to come, Jesus himself would have to go through death to defeat death, to make even death work backwards. You know, Jesus' compassion didn't just lead him to heal a bleeding woman or to raise a daddy's little girl. Jesus' compassion led him to endure death for you, friends, so that when he was raised, you may gain concrete assurance that your God can be trusted, that God isn't distant from you, that he isn't lacking in one ounce of compassion and power. Instead, if you trust him, even if your faith is mixed with a lot of doubt, even if your faith feels very, very weak, if you will rest on him, with all that you know, with the limited that you know, for forgiveness of your sins, you too can experience the miracle of life. Every morning here at Bayless, we include two prayers at the end of our service for those who are seeking out the truth and those who are ready to confess faith. We recognize that, again, many here on a variety of different places when it comes to their relationship with God. You may not be sure, certain, where you're at with God. For those who are hearing Jesus call out to them now to trust him, if you see yourself in this story, if you will put your faith in him, as limited as it is, if you would ask him to continue to pull back the curtain to reveal more of this to you, those who will put your faith even today in what he has done in his cross and resurrection to bring you from death to life, a life even greater than this dad was celebrating this day. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of peace coming to you, a concrete peace that lasts even when your circumstances change, and who knows what next week is going to bring. I mean, how unpredictable are our days, friends? Would you talk to Jesus even this morning? Confess the whole truth and rest upon him for forgiveness. And I'd ask you to let me know or Let one of our elders know. Larry or John and I would love to pray with you. It's one of the best privileges that we have is to hear what God is doing, to see, to watch him at work, just as he has been working in us and once brought us to life ourselves. We want to know what he is doing that he might get the the glory for it and to help you take your next steps in obedience. But Christians, I need to ask you, in light of what we've seen, in light of what we know, Do you have a sense even now of a step of faith that God is asking of you where you don't know the next result? You've been holding it off for far too long because of fear. Because you're afraid of what other people will think, you're afraid of what you might lose. 
God hasn't told you what that next step, and you, step is, and you keep asking him for him for it. You know, you, you say to God, if, if surely if you would tell me that everything's going to be okay, I would follow you next, friend. You have the assurance that you need, that your God is good, that your God will not drop you, that your God can be trusted, and one day you will see that he was way wiser than you knew him to be. What step of faith is he asking to you, you to, have, to take? What kind of conversation do you need to have? What relationship do you need to work to repair? Is there a relationship that needs to change? A career that needs to change? Or are you stepping out, like Jairus, knowing what you've seen and watching for him to provide? Friends, I, I would encourage you to pray too, and I want you to know that me and the other elders would love to pray for you as well. It's our job, too, to help you walk in obedience, whatever that might be, and trust me, I need it, too. But I want to pray for you as we close out our service, and then we're going to join together in one of the best acts that reminds us of what has been done in the act of communion. So let's pray. Lord, we, we come to you. So many of us as uh, seeing ourselves in this story, wanting to know that you can be trusted. Some of us are trying to remain anonymous to consider you from your distance, but you won't let us consider you from a distance. You know that what we need is not something, it's someone, it's you. And so those of us who have been remaining at the margins, whether they're watching online or here in person, I pray that they might take that step of faith to trust you even as weak and fragile as that faith would seem, even if it's mixed with doubt, to take you as at your word that your death and resurrection actually brought them life, a life they can experience now that gives them stability and security in an ever-changing world. And I do pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters here who are believers who struggle in this life of faith like me, who have a sense even now of what you're asking from them, but they're not sure that you're gonna catch them. Lord, you may show up in ways that we didn't expect. We may end up losing even more. But even so, as we walk forward in faith, we have every reassurance because of what you have done through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ, that you are a God who is merciful and good, who isn't lacking in any power or compassion. And you will save. We pray as, the, as people who are in desperation too, those both religious and irreligious, in need of the grace of Christ, we pray for his sake, amen.